Okay, so I'll put this up on the screen. Psalm 34. Now, okay, here we go. If you have a Bible with some kind of like a heading over things, then it tells you that, yes, even though we're done with our series in 1 Samuel, I brought us right back to the same time and the same thing because this is a Psalm of David. And it says in my Bible here, it says, when he changed his behavior before Abimelech so that he drove him out he and he went away. So this is at the, at the end of a point when David's done some not great things and he is like fled from this king and he is, uh, he is now uh, sort of in this repentant place with God. That's where this psalm comes from, Psalm 34. So let's read this together, the first few verses. I'll put them up on the screen too. Uh, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. The poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. You can stop right there. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. You know, David is writing this. He's talking about this. He's singing this psalm out to God. Like I said, after a time when he has sort of stumbled. And this is sort of an unusual way to come out of something, doing something that you regret, something that you're not very proud of. Because most of us, if we're, if we're getting trouble or if we blow it in some way, we don't usually come out of that situation saying things like, praise God, taste and see that the Lord is good. No, we come out of it more sort of characterized by just sort of feeling bad or feeling like, like, this is it. I'm going to, if anything, more confidence, maybe trying to have more confidence in ourselves. Like, this is it. I'm going to come and I'm going to try to do better this next time. But the way that David is talking about God here, it's almost as though uh, doing something bad has brought him to this place where his desire is to get back to something that is good. This is kind of like, I, I, so I'm very familiar with the concept of like uh, uh, people doing things bad and dealing with it because I have kids. And um, I wasn't a bad kid. I didn't do things bad, but so I don't remember a lot of my parents dealing with this, but my kids definitely deal with this a lot. So I'm frequently just talking to my kids about stuff, being like, why are you doing this? What's going on? You know better than this. Let's get past this, right? And there's a noticeable difference between my kids getting in trouble in regular normal life and we'll, we'll say my kid's getting in trouble on vacation, okay? Because when you get in trouble on vacation, you're literally just like, how can we get past this? Let's get back to having fun, right? Whenever something bad happens when you're on vacation, then it's all basically about like, do you see how this thing is... is, is hurting what we're doing right now or don't you want to go back to doing this thing I mean you literally like the act of like sending someone to their room or making someone sit still in a chair or something is like exponentially worse when you're on vacation because of all the epic amazing things that you're then missing out on when normal life is maybe just you sit in a chair most of my my kids spend most of their days most of their time just sitting in chairs so staring at walls that's how we do it it's a quiet place it's how I have my house right so 
Uh, in fact, the other thing that I would say this is a lot like, if you want to know what that's even like, is um, a lot of the conversations I've been having lately, because we set up a pool in our backyard, and so we now have a pool out there, and uh, there's, uh, there's nothing like um, having to talk about bad behavior when someone's swimming. Because, uh, so my kids love swimming, and the moment they get in the pool, they just try to kill each other. And so there's a lot of like, okay, oh, get out, okay, let's, okay, no, we don't do that, no, do you see why? Okay, so it's, 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 it's a very common pattern. It's like, get over here, get out here. They pretend to not hear you. I know they can hear me, okay? They go underwater again, then it gets worse, so they know that, so don't go underwater again. Um, Get them out of the pool. Now, if you want to know what a kid's like when you're yelling at them and they're next to a pool, just imagine a person who absolutely has to go to the bathroom so bad and cannot, barely cannot stand still. Now multiply that by 10. That's what a kid is like when you've pulled them out of the pool and you're yelling at them. Because it's like, okay, so do you understand why we're talking? And it's, okay, yeah, yeah, oh no, I get it. I get, okay, yeah, I get it, I get it. Okay, so do you understand? I don't want, like, I get it, put the lawnmower in the pool, that seemed like a good idea, that was funny, but it was my fault, I built a ramp to the pool, but do you see why we're not doing that? Do you understand? Do you understand? No, look at me, look at me. And then there's like, okay, no, okay, look at me, look at my eyes, look at my eyes, not, not your face, your eyes, face, eyes, eyes. Okay, okay, yeah, whatever, whatever you want, whatever you want. I will literally agree to any Anything that you want right now, I will say. Anything you want me to say, just let me get back in the pool right now. Okay, that's what it's like. This is what it is like when David talks about how good God is. It is as though there is something amazing going on in his life, and he is reflecting back to just how good that is, and that is not the way that we are usually when we blow it in some way. And this tells us something. It tells us something about David. It tells us something about God. There's something about when he does something sinful that it's almost like more than anything else, more than the guilt or the shame of trying to be better or knowing that you're capable of more than that or knowing that, you know, there's, you shouldn't be doing this thing. There's this part of him that goes, man, I've missed out on this thing and now I want to focus on and talk about and praise God for how good he is because I want to get back to this thing. The way that David talks about God it's like someone who's experienced something that is so profoundly satisfying and fulfilling and enjoyable that he simply says, taste and see that the Lord is good. I am so confident in who God is. I'm so confident in how good God is that I can tell you all you have to do is taste and see that the Lord is good. He will take care of the rest. If I were to ask most people, if I were to ask you this question, do you take joy in the Lord? Is God a source of joy in your life? I'm not sure that most Christians would say yes to that. We might say it to a person that asked us in a small group or something like that. Maybe God should be a source of joy in your life. Maybe you know that's what you should answer. But I mean, most would stop and think, I mean, would I say God's a source of joy in my life? I'm not sure that that's how I define the relationship. Why is that? Why is it that you can even try to follow Jesus for years and yet lack this sort of sense of the goodness, and even the pleasure that comes from God himself. If he is the way the Bible describes him to be, 
then I should be finding some like profound joy in him. Am I? Is that what I get from this? If not, why? There's a reason why a person could even seek to follow after God and still struggle to get a sense of his joy, the joy that is found in him. And you see it all the way back in the beginning of creation. I want to look in Genesis chapter 1 and the creation accounts and see how God set things up in this world. We read in Genesis 1.26, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all of the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created a male and female. He created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth. And every tree with seed and its fruits, you shall have them for food and to every beast of the earth and every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning on the sixth day. This is paradise. This is a description of paradise. In fact, this is, the Bible claimed, this is the definition of paradise. This is how we know what that is. I have often asked both Christians and non-Christians alike, how would you describe paradise? You learn a lot about a person by the answer to that question. You can learn a lot about yourself and you just stop and think about the mental image that pops up in your brain when you think about what paradise would be. For some, it might be exactly what you read about in Genesis, just a nice garden. For many, it's something else. God gives people all that they need, but then he goes on and we read about in chapter 2 these trees that God puts in the garden. The Lord planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed, and out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant in the sight for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it, and the Lord God commanded this man, saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat it, you shall surely die. So, God gives two trees to man and woman, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But he doesn't just give them two, he gives them a lot more than that. Paradise here is not a spiritual Idea. It's not a spiritual place. God has created physical paradise for man and woman, for people, for us, and he has given them, what is that paradise characterized by? Abundance. It is everything that they could possibly need and more. 
And he says to them, he says, I've given all these plants for the animals so they can eat plants and they're going to be good. They're going to have full bellies. They're going to be happy. And I'm going to give you all of these trees and all of these vegetables and fruits and everything that you can eat and that'll make you happy. And then he gives them the tree of life and said, from this tree, you can eat. You may eat the fruit of this tree. And this other tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you cannot eat, surely you will die. Now, why is the tree of life called the tree of life? Is it called the tree of life because if they don't eat it, they'll die? Is it called the tree of life because with all the other stuff he gave them, they're only supposed to eat of that tree? No, that's not why. The tree of life is the tree of life, and it is in the center of the garden for a reason, because it is the best thing in the garden. Of all of the created stuff that God has given them, he has given them something that is the best. It is the tree of life, which means, presumably, any other food that they can find in the garden is not going to be as good as the fruit that grows from this tree which is why they're not going to want to stray too far away from it. Okay, you could live in a house on a beautiful lake out in the middle of nowhere, but unfortunately, you're not going to be very close to a place where you can get pizza. And if you aren't going to be very close to a place where you can get pizza, then I struggle to understand how that is paradise. Thus, not as many people live out on lakes in the middle of nowhere as you would think. Most people are trying to find a lake within driving distance of pizza or also Target. Pastor Matt just got, uh, Matt just got a pizza oven for, uh, for Father's Day. Yeah, right? I mean, it's doing pretty well. No, apparently they're not that expensive. He got a pizza oven, and boy, oh boy, he was evangelizing to me the glory of the pizza oven and how great the pizza oven was. So he can go out and he can live somewhere and take his pizza oven with him and be more than fine with that. But the rest of us, mere normal people, do not have this ability. When something is really good, you don't want to get very far away from that thing. You want to be able to have access to it. You want to be able to get to it. And this is why Adam and Eve were always going to go back to the tree of life. Because the fruit from that tree gave a kind of life, a quality of life that was better than everything else. This is something that is fundamentally true about God's creation. Is that he gives us so many good things, but ultimately there is a a best thing. And that thing is where life is found. That best thing is him. The tree of life is him. The tree of life, to choose to eat of that tree is to recognize this thing is way better than anything else. And every time that I eat of it, as I choose to eat of it, I am choosing that I will find life in him. So why on the earth would he even put another tree in the garden? Why would he put a tree in the garden called the knowledge of good and evil? Why in the middle of the garden? Why right next to the tree of life, presumably? Well, especially if you know where the story goes next, you wonder that. Because here's what happens. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. 
The serpent, the enemy, the deceiver, lies to the woman. He takes God's words and he twists them around and he repeats them back to her and he says, is it true God said he could eat any of this stuff? Because it sounds like to me, it sounds like God said, sounds like God said you can't really have any of this stuff that he made for you. That doesn't make sense. No, that's not right. That's not what God said, says the woman. She corrects him and says, this is what God said. Why put a tree in the garden that you can't even touch and put it right next to the tree of life? Because in order for them to truly trust the life that God offers them and gives them and provides for them, they must choose that life. In the same way that in any relationship of true love, a person is chosen and others are not. That in any incredibly close friendship, a person is chosen and others are not. That as a parent, some are children and raised in your family, others are by nature not. In the same way, true devotion, true commitment, true love can come only by recognizing that this thing is better and is best. Now, what the enemy does here is something that is incredibly crafty because he's a serpent. What he does is he introduces this idea. He takes all of God's creation, all the good things that God's made, and he frames it in a certain way. He says, you know, I think God's holding out on you. I think there's something else, something better, something more enjoyable than what he's offered you. And she believes it. And because she believes it, it changes in this very subtle way. It changes the way that she sees the perfect good thing that God has given them. And thus is born the idea of this idea that God is good for you. God is good for you. In the same way that anything else that you uh, need in order to be a healthy, productive, you know, right person, you need things that are good for you. God is one of those things. In keeping with the theme of, of Pastor Matt, because um, I like talking about him more than myself, um, you know, Pastor Matt decided recently that he wanted to, uh, you know, be, be a little bit healthier. So he, uh, he decided to go the route of eating salads for lunch every day. And, um, and as his friend, as somebody who wants for him to be like a resilient person, um, I, I feel like it's my responsibility then to try to have lunch with him as often as possible at places that have pizza. Um, and so I will sit and I will eat pizza in front of him and he'll have his iceberg lettuce with his tap water dressing or whatever they've given him. And, 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 and so that he can, uh, so that, and, and it works great. I think it really helps him. Um, although now he has a pizza oven at home, so I guess that's probably going to be an issue, but I'm sure he doesn't get to eat that pizza, right? Other people just eat it in front of him. See, that's how much he enjoyed it, was he wanted to see his family do it too. That's what I tell myself. I go out with him, and we eat, and I eat pizza, and he eats a salad, and he's sad, and I'm happy. But the reason that he is maybe not totally in despair and sad is because he knows that what he's doing is good for him, Right? You see, the hope is that eventually, after enough time, apart from having rock-hard six-pack abs, that he will uh, one day taste a piece of pizza maybe and go, yeah, you know, 
I I miss these leaves. I miss the leaves. I miss the salad. I miss it. I've acquired a taste for it. Now the thing that's good for me, I actually enjoy it. I actually like it, right? And all those healthy people on all those commercials that seem happy, and I always thought they were, that's why they're happy. They really are enjoying this more than I was enjoying my pizza before. That is the hope. That is maybe the hope. But ultimately, the reason that he's making that choice is because he recognizes, you know, I kind of want to live a little bit longer. I kind of want to be in a little, feel a little bit better. I kind of want to be able to breathe a little bit better. And I want to be able to do a little bit better in life. And so, you know, and I'm going to make some choices to do some things that are good for me. Even though we all know that doing things that are good for us is not the funnest thing in the world. And the last thing that you would ever want to say is that, if you're honest with yourself, is that the things that you do that are good for you are not the same as the things you do that are good to you, the things that are pleasurable and enjoyable to you. And so when Satan says to Adam and Eve, when he says, God's holding out on you, there are other things that are even more enjoyable, that make life even more abundant, and he's holding out on you in those things. That introduces in their idea, this, in their mind, this idea that maybe that is true, but, but you know what, you know what, at the very best, if you believe that, if you believe that God's holding out on you, if you believe that there are more satisfying and better things that you don't have access to because of what he's said, then the best that you can do is try for a while to focus on the thing that is good for you. But ultimately, every single human being, as we have seen, will get worn down and will eventually say, I can't do it anymore. I want the thing that's good to me. I can only do the right thing for so long. I can only do the disciplined thing for so long. I can only do the healthy thing for so long. God is good for you is what the enemy says to them. He doesn't, he allows for there to be room for this thing. And in that room, there's a distortion. And in that distortion lies everything. I've been a Christian for like 25 years and I've been in ministry in the church for 15 years and I can tell you without hesitation that most people that I've known in that time who are Christians are probably not experiencing joy in God. He's good for them. We want other people to have things that are good for them too. Because we want them to live longer. We want them to be healthier. We want them to be better. I mean, isn't that the way the world itself even gets better? But joy is not found in God when he is at best the thing that's good for you. Now, the crazy thing is that God is good for you, but he's not just good for you. And if all we have is an incomplete view of God then we will eventually give in. We will eventually falter. We will eventually sin because we'll say, I don't just want the things that are good for me. I want the things that are good to me. God is good for you. Knowing God is better for your soul than anything else that you could ever discipline yourself toward. God is better for you as a person to be the best version of you that you can possibly be. Don't get me wrong. God is 
good for you. He is better than anything you can discipline yourself towards. He is better than anything that you can invest yourself in to try to find fulfillment. He is better than exercise. He's better than learning. He's better than understanding the stock market or the housing market or the political landscape or any current issue in the world. Knowing God is literally the best thing that you can invest yourself in if you want the best version of yourself. God is good for you, but he's more than that. And when Eve believed the serpent, and when Adam believed the serpent, and they took of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, their sin was in believing, losing sight of the abundance of what God had given them. It was not believing that God is as good as he says he is. Because God is also good to you. This is what the Bible says. The Bible says... Things that we read in the Bible say to us, just like what we read from David, a man who has sinned and is now coming back to God, he's saying, I want to get back to the source of joy and life that I have. There is so much abundance found in God, in him, that you need only taste and see that the Lord is good, and then you'll know. That's how confident that he is. God is not just good for you, he is good to you. And if you truly believe that he's good to you, that he is ultimately the most satisfying, that he is ultimately the most fulfilling, that God is ultimately the most enjoyable thing in his creation, then you would never choose anything but him. You see, what he does... What happens when the people sin? What happens when they fall? You'll notice God gave them, again, this is a characteristic of God's creation. He's given so many good options and good things for us to enjoy. Those things are not bad. Those things are good too. But nothing is as good as him, the source of life. And it is when someone loses sight of that that then these other good things begin to be corrupted as well. This is why you cannot have a true, full appreciation or enjoyment of any of the things on this earth or in this life without enjoying and appreciating those things in the context of the God who created them and the place they fit in there. The moment we lose sight of how abundant a life in God is, of how good he is, is the moment that we begin looking for other things to fill us up in that way. And we go from being ones who worship God to these little idol factories in the waiting. Because eventually the idols are going to come up. Eventually, one of the other things, your job, your family, the things that you look to for pleasure and enjoyment, uh, rest, anything, can eventually become something that is working against you. Why? Because if God's not the one that I find my joy in, then I'm obviously going to be looking for my joy in these other things. And that will ruin then even those things. This is what ultimately happens to Adam and Eve. God is good for us, but he is also good to us. There is nothing more satisfying than knowing God. Knowing God is more pleasurable than money, than food, than drink, than sex, drugs, and rock and roll. 
as hard as that may be to believe. Knowing God is more pleasurable than children, than love of others, than friendship. Knowing God is more pleasurable than the things that we do to relax when we can do whatever we want. Are there things in your life that you are looking to for satisfaction other than God? When I ask the question, do you find joy in God? Does that seem like such a weird concept because you don't think of God as one that you would find joy in? You think of God as the thing that keeps you healthy, the thing that keeps you on the right track, the thing that keeps you in line, that you really wish a lot of other people in this world had to keep them in line. One of the verses in the Bible that I have the hardest time reconciling with my life is Matthew 11.30, where Jesus says to his disciples, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I read that and I go, that's not exactly how I would describe following Jesus most days. So where's the disconnect? Is he saying something that's not true? When I look at the other things that Jesus says, man, they seem to be pretty hard. Then when I look at the other things that God says, they seem to be pretty hard too. It seems like following him is a pretty tough thing, a pretty tough deal. And then I come to realize as I look back at this again and again, that if the things that I'm doing are not coming as a result of my being in God, like you said last week, when our doing it for God doesn't come out of our being in God, then we grow weary, we grow worn down, we grow exhausted. We cannot work or achieve or accomplish our way to a fullness of life in God. We can't do it. And if we think we're doing it, chances are other people aren't looking at us going, that looks like the fullness of life to me. Jesus says my yoke is easy and my burden is light. If he brings freedom and he brings an abundant life found in God, the life that was lost in the garden by Adam and Eve, do we feel that way, those of us who are following Jesus today? If you don't, if you don't feel that his yoke is easy, that his burden is light, if you don't feel that you see that taste and see that the Lord is good sense that David himself talks about, then is it possible that the reason that you don't see it that way is because you've seen God as something that is good for you while the other things in life are good to you and that God belongs in a compartment with everything else? You say, well, yeah, I've got my God section and then I've got my job section and then I've got my friends section and then I've got my family section and I've got my money section and I've got my, my fun section and then I've got the stuff no one's supposed to know about that I do, but that's okay because it's just kind of in its own little section and it doesn't get too crazy or out of control like some of those other people I know. And when everything in your life is in a compartment, then you cannot find full, satisfying life and joy in God. We read this in John 10, 10. Jesus says, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I come that they may have life and have it abundantly. The deceiver, the enemy, comes and says, no, I'm here to give you life. And if you would just listen to me and know that what God says, God says that he's, you know, that he offers this great life, that he has this great abundant life for you. That's not true. You know that. Believe me, I offer you life. He only offers you hard things, and aren't you kind of tired of that? No, the enemy is the one that offers, that comes and steals and kills and destroys. Uh, 
Jesus reminded his followers and he said to the people that were coming to him, he said, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. When we talk about abundance, we're talking about this idea of having more, right? A person with an abundance of anything is a person who has more of something than you would think is average or normal. And having more of something is entirely a matter of perspective when it comes to God. Because you can either have more of God or you can have more than God. But when we think about what it is to have an abundant life, many of us, if we're honest, are in the second category. I have God. Yeah, God's there. He's available to whoever is wanting him and open to him and ready for him. Maybe I've grown up around God, and so I've always had God be a part of my life. I don't think much about it. But an abundant life to me is, is, is more than that. There needs to be more than that to life because he's just one compartment of many different things. But the way the Bible talks about an abundant life, a life that is truly fulfilling, a life that is truly filled with joy, is a life in which one stops and says... If I had more of God, then I would experience more joy. If I want to know how to have a life of joy, if I want to know how to experience truly good things, then the question that I have to ask is, do I see that God is better than this thing? Do I see that God is better than this thing? And how could that possibly be in working through that? Would more God bring me abundant life that Jesus talks about? Or is it that I really just need other things? If you've ever found yourself, this may be hard to imagine, if you've ever found yourself at a place in life where you're saying, I don't feel joyful in my life. If you've ever found yourself in that place, is the next automatic step after feeling that way, after knowing that you feel that way, to go then and to look for something to find joy in. There's got to be something that I'm missing in my life. There's got to be something that can fill me up in that way, that can make me a little bit happier. Or do we respond by saying, more of God means an abundant life that Jesus promises and talks about. How do you have more of God? What this talks about, and it's one of the reasons that it's hard for us to wrap our mind around it, is that it's this feeling of, for a, a person who's a follower of Jesus or who is, is seeking to, to, to like live in the reality of being a child of God already, then it's this thing that you have, but you're still pursuing. I have a relationship with God, but I'm pursuing a relationship with God. I have this place with him and his kingdom, and yet I'm pursuing his kingdom. And that can be a really difficult thing to wrap our mind around. How do you keep pursuing something that you already have? Well, it's simple. You have something and you know it is good and you want more of that thing and so you continue to pursue it. Seeing that there is no end to the goodness of God. You talk with God. You sing to God. You meditate upon who God is and what his scripture says about him. You surround yourself with the people of God and the community of God. Building community on, 
on, on the, with those who are also a part of the family of God. You do these things knowing that it is only through time spent with him that you can experience more of him. Yes, there are some who are very abstract and sort of like able to just kind of think about something more and get more of a sense of that with God. But for the majority of people, it's actually an act of, of doing, yes, of, of, of doing sometimes the very things that we're already doing. But that's the crazy thing about it is a thing done in pursuit of God himself is different from a thing done in pursuit of of what it earns us or what it gets us or just the fact that we know that's good for you. It's not necessarily good to you. If you see worship as a way of encountering God, then what does that mean about worship for you? If the, op- if the times that you have the opportunity to worship God corporately with other believers, you see as your opportunity to encounter God, then it doesn't matter what instruments are being played. It doesn't matter even the songs necessarily that are being played. Uh, in fact, the familiarity of those things, uh, those, those that I know who, who seem to truly uh, appreciate uh, and work to encounter God as often as possible in worship are often those who are the most excited when someone brings a new song to them and go, this is a new thing that I can think about with God. This is a new concept. This is something that's not, not that's brand new information. That would be heresy. This is something that, that I haven't really thought much about and, I, and I'm not used to singing about. And these are things that I'm not necessarily used to focusing on when I focus on God and as I sing to Him. Coming to God hoping, looking to encounter him, to appreciate and enjoy the goodness that is found in him is a powerful thing. If you see the Bible as a way of getting to know someone that you're deeply interested in and magnetically pulled towards, then there is a desire that that brings to be in God's word, even if it's just, and this may sound crazy to you, even if it's just you looking at it yourself. It doesn't have to be something that pops up on Facebook that catches your attention that's a Bible verse. It doesn't have to be something that pops up on Instagram. It doesn't have to be something that's going on in a group that you're a part of. It doesn't have to even be uh, just a single verse in a devotion that, that you read. You might find yourself opening God's word saying, I, I, I desire to find and encounter and see the goodness of God in this thing. Because I recognize that life is found there. And to be drawn to that thing, knowing not this is just good for me, but that I can find joy here. If you see, there are those who find talking to God, who is not physically present in front of you, an easy thing, a natural thing, who have the gift of being able to do that easily and naturally and well. And there are those of us, I'd say us, as I've often struggled as well, who struggle to uh, regularly, naturally communicate in the one relationship I seem to have with the person who isn't physically in front of me. Is it common for me to talk to my friends when they're not there? No. Is it common for me to talk to my spouse when they're not there? No, not really. 
You can kind of talk to yourself because you're still sort of there, but what is it the Bible talks about in telling us to do this thing called praying, to actually, to actually speak to and converse with a God who is not physically present in front of us? Why on earth would I do that? How unnatural does it seem when I begin to try to do that? It can seem pretty unnatural. But if I know, not that it's good for me to do it, not that it makes me healthier as a spiritual person, not that it makes me grow into a more mature person or, I don't know, an admirable person or a person who's disciplined, but if I know, if I believe and trust in what God says about himself that life and joy and the goodness of God can be encountered and found and experienced through talking to him and even listening to him, then can I do that? The things that we do in seeking to be, have more intimacy with God, in seeking to encounter God more, are not always easy and natural things to do. But neither are the things we do in any relationship with people. We do unnatural things in relationships. We stretch ourselves and we attempt things because we believe that we can find joy and pleasure and goodness in those things. If you don't find God to be a source of joy and happiness in your life, if you ask yourself that question, do I think of him that way? Then it might be because there are simply so many other things in your life that you look to for actually finding joy and pleasure that there's no room left for God. This is an incredibly common state of man. We are very good at focusing on so many different things as ways of finding joy and fulfillment that it's no surprise that we would say, I'm not sure that I would see God that way. You might be so close to church. You might, be, you might come to church regularly. You might be so familiar with the things that you've read about or heard about God or the things that you've grown up knowing about God. And yet, it has never occurred to you that the life that, that, that the Bible tells us, the life that he offers us is an abundant life filled with joy because God is ultimately good to you and for you. You can't just remove things that you enjoy in life if there's nothing there to replace them with. Ask any person who has ever struggled with any kind of substance abuse that the act of just trying to stop doing the thing will only last for so long. Because we ultimately seek the things that will fill us up and that bring us joy. What happened when the enemy entered into the garden and began to deceive Adam and Eve was that the enemy introduced this concept, this idea that you can find joy somewhere else along with God. But ultimately that led to complete separation from God. When we talk about finding God to be a source of joy and happiness, feeling this sense of the goodness of God and being feeling like you're actually sort of even living in light of the reward of knowing that and believing that and, and experiencing that, it may be that you're someone who 
is a follower of Jesus, who is familiar, again, as, uh, who, has, who, has, who has learned a lot about God in terms of knowledge and information, who, is, who has worked to be disciplined and to be, to be right and to do the good things that he calls us to do out of a sense of, of obligation and wanting to do the right thing. Um, it may even be someone who has served in his name and effort, in an effort to do things to please him. And yet, for whatever reason, you've believed the lie for so long that God is not also good and that true joy is not found in him. And because of that, it's never occurred to you that he is ultimately the source of that. The enemy comes only to steal and kill and destroy Jesus says, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. As we worship right now, as we, I'm, I'm very excited that we get to talk about this for a few weeks. Because we talk often about the fact that the way sin works in the life of people, you see it in Adam and Eve before you see it anywhere else in the Bible. Adam and Eve did not sin because they were starving. They didn't sin because they didn't have other options. They sinned because they did not believe what God said about himself was true. That is what led to sin. And so, if we aren't convinced that God is as good as he says he is, then there is going to be a lot of wreckage in our lives that comes as a result of that, and we're not going to be very good at offering the good news of the gospel to others. God is good. He's not just good for me. He is good to me. A life in him is a life of joy. In fact, it can be a life of such profound joy that you can lose everything else and still have joy. I have seen more people come to faith watching Christians lose things than watching them gain things because of the joy that is still there that speaks to a God who is better and bigger than all the other things that we choose to find our happiness and our satisfaction in. Let's pray. God, as we continue to worship you right now, my prayer is, is simply this, that you would give us, that you would overwhelm us with a sense of your goodness, God. That you would remind us of exactly how good you are, Lord. God, we um, have, so many of us have such a limited view of who you are. God, would you give us a sense through your Holy Spirit, God, just an appreciation for exactly what it was that people experienced that we read about in the Bible, Lord. God, there's been nothing, in my life, there's been nothing like coming alongside people who truly see your goodness and embody it, Lord. It is infectious and it is like the difference between looking at a movie in black and white and looking at a movie in color, Lord. 
God, we want to be a people who truly see how good you are. Whose lives don't speak to all the other things that we look at and find joy in, but whose lives speak ultimately to you, God. Would you just give us a sense of that right now as we worship you, as we praise you? Would you help us as we seek to encounter you, God, and experience your goodness? It's in your name we pray. Amen.